This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 9th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. It has been a dramatic week of denials after a bombshell book detailing White House chaos by legendary Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward and a damning op-ed in the New York Times written by an anonymous administration official. It sent the president into a furious frenzy. If the failing New York Times has an anonymous editorial, can you believe it? Anonymous, meaning gutless, a gutless editorial. Uh, We're doing a great job. The book is a work of fiction. If you look back at Woodward's past, he had the same problem with other presidents. But are the leaks and allegations that paint a picture of a staff trying to protect the country from the president accurate? We asked Vice President Mike Pence. The only thing that's wrong about that narrative is everything. Because it, it shows, it shows a, a complete misunderstanding of how this White House works. Who wrote it? It's the biggest mystery in Washington since Watergate's deep throat. The president called for an investigation by his Justice Department. I would say Jeff should be investigating who the author of that piece was, because I really believe it's national security. But is it an issue of national security? We'll ask the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Virginia's Mark Warner. And in yet another never-before occurrence, a former president vented his frustration at the way the current occupant of the White House is running the country. It's not conservative. It sure isn't normal. It's radical. It's a vision that says the protection of our power and those who back us is all that matters even when it hurts the country. We'll talk about what all of this means for the midterm elections with the two party chairs, Democrat Tom Perez and Republican Ronna McDaniel. Plus, as football season begins and Colin Kaepernick makes headlines again, Mark Leibovich of the New York Times joins our panel to talk about his new book on the future of the game. All of that and plenty of political analysis coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. At the end of an explosive week in the Trump administration, we spoke with Vice President Mike Pence at his home on the grounds of the Naval Observatory here in Washington. We began by asking him about the New York Times op-ed and the more than two dozen high-ranking Trump administration officials who have denied writing it. In the past, yeah. respectfully, I mean, you suffered when you were lied to by Michael Flynn. I mean, he was fired for lying to you. What do you believe the denials this time? I, I do, because I know the men and women who serve with us in this cabinet. But I also do because whoever wrote that editorial and the narrative that comes out of some other writings recently just doesn't know what really happens in this White House. I've seen this president in action. Is he demanding? Yes. Is he a strong leader who expects things done yesterday? Yes. Uh, but, uh, but for someone to say that, that what we've accomplished in the last 18 months is in spite of this president's leadership, it just reflects an ignorance uh, about, about President Trump and about our administration. One of the claims made in the op-ed is that there had been discussion of invoking the 25th Amendment to even remove the president from office. Ha have you ever been part of a conversation about that? No, never. And why, why would we be, Margaret? I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, over the last eight years, despite what we heard from President Obama on Friday. And by the time I left office, household income was near its all-time high. 
and the uninsured rate had hit an all-time low, and wages were rising, and poverty rates were falling. Uh, I mention all this just so when you hear how great the economy is doing right now, <laughs> let's just remember uh, when this recovery started. Um, this, this country was struggling. I mean, it was the weakest economic recovery since the Great Depression, because having inherited a recession, President Obama's answer was to raise taxes, uh, to double the national debt, to increase regulation, to pass Obamacare into law, to stifle American He says American the economic energy. upswing began on his watch. Well, I, I know he said that, but I don't think too many Americans noticed it. You said that there are other writings that, that you also think are inaccurate here. Bob Woodward had this book that just is about to come out describing in detail a number of incidents inside the White House where he basically describes people around the president trying to protect the country from him. What is it that you think is inaccurate in his description? Well, the only thing that's wrong about that narrative is everything because it, it shows... It shows a, a complete misunderstanding of how this White House works. I mean, what, what President Trump provides for this country every day is strong and decisive leadership in the Oval Office. The narrative that I've picked up in, in not only this book but the opinion editorial is, suggests that, uh, that, that things are happening in spite of the president's leadership and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, our founders envisioned uh, all executive power be invested in the president of the United States, and the American people should know all the progress that we're making is a result of the fact that President Trump engages in debate. He gets all of the facts, and he's not afraid Woodward to make a decision has, and move forward. He spoke to 100 people. He has recordings. He has notes to back up these firsthand accounts. I mean, one of the instances was he said that the president was stopped from tweeting about withdrawing U.S. personnel from South Korea because North Korea would view it as an act of war. These are specific instances. Are you saying they didn't happen? What that suggests, and, and what, I, what I get from other examples and narratives, is uh, is that, that, that people are, are managing the president when, in fact, what happens in the White House every day, Margaret, is the president invites opinions. He tends to put people around the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office who have diverse views, and, and, and he invites a vigorous debate uh, over what policies ought to be embraced. Then he makes a decision, and we go forward, whether it's foreign policy, domestic policy, uh, whether it's uh, legislation on Capitol Hill. And you that's think he exactly respects those advisors? Of, that's exactly the kind of leadership the American people wanted when they elected President Donald Trump. But some of the instances here are really specific. The president publicly has mocked Jeff Sessions, but in this book, these are specific instances of uh, disregarding the Commerce Secretary to his face, insulting other cabinet officials. Do you dispute all of these examples? Well, I, I, I would tell you, I know this president has great respect for the men and women who serve in this cabinet. And the, these accounts are very foreign to me. And, I, and I, I, I'm just not aware of instances where they've occurred and or, or where they would occur. But look, I, I, I want to stipulate that uh, working in the White House is not for everybody. I mean, this president is tough. He's demanding. Uh, he wants things yesterday. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've accomplished so much in such a short period of time. I mean, the truth is, I think President Donald Trump is the most accomplished president of my lifetime, and I think already one of the most successful presidents in American history. Do you think in people should be fired years. because of this? Well, I, I truly believe that um, that whoever penned this opinion editorial should do the honorable thing and resign. I mean, the truth of the matter is that the the, uh, the opinions that they expressed um, are not only deceitful and false, but they're also un-American, and they represent an assault on our democracy. The president has made clear, though, that he doesn't uh, agree with his attorney general on a number of things. And earlier this week, he suggested that uh, Jeff Sessions should not have brought charges against two Republican lawmakers who were running for re-election because he thought it could uh, jeopardize the party's control of Congress. I mean, this suggests that the Justice Department should be taking politics and making it a priority. 
Well, I think Do you one agree of, with that? Well, I, I think there are guidelines in the Department of Justice about not making decisions or taking action that may impact elections, and that's longstanding through numerous administrations. But look, I think one of the so, things so the Jeff American Sessions, people... So Jeff Sessions, you agree, was... Well, what, what I want to say, Margaret, is what, what the American people appreciate is that th this, this president says what he thinks. He lets people know what he feels about things. But, and, and, and really, in a very real sense, what you see is what you get with President Donald Trump. And I think that's the reason why he's made the connection that he's made with people all across this country. Because while Washington, DC, of, of that, while Washington, D.C. focuses to on matter, these various controversies, he's focused on their interests. That, that may be frank, that may be what he thinks, but that there's a danger to saying things like that because it suggests that rule of law should be, should be sublimated to politics. No, I, I, this is a president who has strongly affirmed our commitment to the rule of law and to, the, to our justice system. I think you, you need look no further than than the, the hearings this week with Judge Kavanaugh to hear his strong affirmation of an independent judiciary. This president's reflected that throughout the policies of this administration. But, but look, he, he's always going to be transparent about how he feels about things. And, and as I said, there's longstanding Department of Justice guidelines that have to do with making sure that actions are not taken that, that, uh, that, that inadvertently impact the electoral process. But all of that being said, I, I really do believe the president's candor is one of the reasons why the American people appreciate him. What are your plans to sit for an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller? You know, we've fully cooperated over the last year. Has he asked for an interview with the Mueller with you investigation? Uh, he has not, although we've provided any and all information and, and we'll continue to do that. Then but you'd be willing to sit with him if he were to ask? I would, I would be more than willing to continue to provide any and all support in that. And we have outside counsel that will advise me accordingly. But I just have to tell you, Margaret, it's just not been my focus. And it's not the president's focus. I mean, the reason why we're making the progress that we're making all across this country, rebuilding our military, restoring American strength in the world, seeing the opportunity for peace emerge, on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, we, we're hearing, we're expecting a letter as we speak from Kim Jong-un, uh, communicating again, as he did last week, his, his reaffirmation of his commitment to denuclearization. No more nuclear tests, no more missile tests. Our hostages are home. And I had the privilege of being there when the remains of, of 55 fallen Americans in the Korean War were returned to American soil. So you don't That's think the, the diplomacy of the is stalled, even though the Secretary of State called off his visit? Well, I, I actually believe that when the President canceled the meeting a week ago because he wasn't seeing enough progress in denuclearization, that that may well have resulted in what uh, Kim Jong-un communicated to a South Korean envoy just last week. And we're anticipating the letter from Kim Jong-un. and. All the while, our sanctions remain in place. And do you think you need to cast the deciding vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh? Well, we hope not. I, I think the I think what the You're American people. You're not sure people, where you are on vote count yet. I, I, I we'll see where we are. But I, I have to tell you that um, despite the uh, embarrassing display by many Senate Democrats in the Judiciary Committee, uh, uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh showed the intellect, the temperament, the judicial philosophy that I, I believe should generate broad-based support in the United States Senate. And we have every confidence that Judge Brett Kavanaugh will very soon be Justice Brett Kavanaugh and take his seat on the Supreme Court. One of the challenges of television interviews is going back and clarifying your words after the cameras have been turned off. We experienced that in our interview with the vice president Saturday. Here's what we asked at the beginning of the interview about who wrote the anonymous op-ed. So you don't think anyone on your staff, since they're calling themselves a Trump appointee, had anything to do with this? I, I just, I, I wouldn't know. And I, I would, I really would hope not. And I, I was, I, I was heartened to see so many of our colleagues make it very clear that they weren't involved in this in any way. Look, I, I can tell you. Uh, serving alongside this president is, uh, is an incredible privilege for me. And I know it is for, for every member of our cabinet and all the senior personnel in our administration. I mean, this is, a, this is a president who literally gets up every day 
and works to keep the promises that we made to the American people. And when you look at the record of success over the last 18 months, it's truly been remarkable. After the interview, the vice president told us he had misunderstood the question and asked if he could clarify. So we turned the cameras back on. Mr. Vice President, I, I asked you earlier if anyone on your staff wrote this op-ed. Have you asked your staff? Oh, well, I, I thought you were speaking about the administration staff. Let me be very clear. I'm 100 percent confident that no one on the vice president's staff was involved in this anonymous editorial. I, I, I know my people, Margaret. They get up every day and are dedicated just as much as I am to advancing the president's agenda and supporting everything that President Trump is doing for the people of this country. And so, you asked them. Well, I, you know, you know, honestly, I don't have to ask them because I know them. I know their character. I know their dedication. And I am absolutely confident that no one on the vice president's staff had anything to do with this. But that being said, you know, who, whoever this was, they should do the honorable thing and resign. We'll be back with the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner. Hi, I'm Dan Primack, business editor at Axios. Right now, you can download, subscribe, and hear Pro Rata, the first podcast from Axios. We talk about the collision of politics, business, and technology, things like election hacking or the battle over 3D-printed guns or the Washington, D.C. blowback against big tech platforms like Facebook and Google. Listen and subscribe to Axios Pro Rata now. It's free on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows to get smarter, faster. We're back now with Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner, who joins us today from one of my favorite cities, Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Senator, thank you for coming on Face the Nation. Uh, we spoke with Vice President Mike, you, Mike Pence, who said that he has not been asked by special counsel Robert Mueller for an interview, but that he would be willing to sit for one and help with that investigation. What do you make of that? Well, it seems to me that Pen Mr. Pence is doing the appropriate activity. There's an ongoing investigation that's had now, I believe, six guilty pleas, over 30 indictments, guilty pleas that have included the president's campaign manager, the president's lawyer, the president's CFO has at least got an immunity, and Mr. Papadopoulos, one of the president's foreign policy aides during the campaign, clearly indicated that he had been offered dirt on Hillary Clinton and Clinton emails. So there was outreach from, from the Trump, from the Russians to the Trump operation. So the fact that Vice President Pence is cooperating is great. I wish his boss, uh, Mr. Trump, would have the same level of cooperation. Donald Trump continues to say he's done nothing wrong, then he should sit, sit down and talk to the Mueller investigation. Do you have any questions for the Vice President about what he may have known about what happened in 2016? I'm not going to go through where we are at this point in our Intelligence Committee investigation. We've had interviewed over 100 folks. We've still got folks like Mr. Papadopoulos, and we'd love to get back Mr. Cohen, uh, that we want to pursue. But I do think the main activity, uh, and clearly Mr. Mueller has a lot more tools in his tool chest than we have at, at the Senate Intelligence Committee. So still no date in terms of when you might get George Papadopoulos, the former foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, to, to sit and answer questions with you, and, and do you intend to go back to the Attorney General to ask why he gave very different testimony than George Papadopoulos has about conversations regarding setting up a meeting with Vladimir Putin? I think that's something I'm, that I would imagine the Mueller investigation is looking into. Uh, we do want to see Papadopoulos. We also want to see Michael Cohen, who's indicated that he would come back without any immunity and testify before our committee, and our committee is the last bipartisan efforts that's trying to pursue these facts. And if you, but if you step back from it uh, and you look at all of the guilty pleas that Mueller has received and the total number of indictments, the fact that this president still undermines the Mueller investigation, this president who this week is out, you know, basically calling into question somebody who wrote a memo about the activities or an op-ed that are activities inside the White House, a president who is basically asking the Justice Department to back off on criminal indictments of Republican members. This is not a president who understands how our system of laws and rule of law works. And that really bothers me. And one of the reasons why I, I again, I hope Mueller gets to the bottom of this. It doesn't sound like you're going to issue the Senate report before the November midterm races. I think we'll be hard pressed. What we have, we had four pieces of our investigation 
before we got to collusion. The first, which was reconfirming the intelligence community assessment that the Russians intervened to help Trump hurt Clinton. Second, election security. And we've got bipartisan election security legislation that I wish the Senate would take up and pass. Unfortunately, Majority Leader McConnell has held off on allowing us to vote on that. Mm -hmm. The third is, and we will be fairly harsh on some of the activities from the Obama administration and the FBI. And then we've also, and just this past week, we had another hearing on social media where, again, we're trying to look not only at what happened in 2016, but on a going forward basis. And we made a lot of progress with at least Facebook and Twitter in terms of policy issues we can pursue. Then we've got this final issue, obviously, of collusion. Do you see any national security concerns that would justify the president's call for the attorney general to look into who authored this anonymous op-ed by someone claiming to work within the administration? Listen, I wish that whoever had uh, written the op-ed would have revealed their identity, but I see absolutely no national security issues. I, I wonder when the Woodwork, Woodward book comes out, in my understanding, his, uh, uh, he has documented interviews with over 100 folks in the White House, whether this president is going to try to sick the Justice Department on all the folks who talk, talk to Bob Woodward. This is clearly a president that is a White House that's in chaos and a president that's becoming more and more untethered. And if you just step back for a moment and look at the last three months, we've had a president who had this disastrous policy with separating kids and families at the border. Mm -hmm. We had the president who had a, a frankly, I think, unpresidential appearance with Vladimir Putin, a president who zigged and zagged on tariffs, these efforts around his senior officials who pled guilty, his, you know, frankly, unseemly behavior towards John McCain, and now this reactions to um, the, both the book and the op-ed. It appears that the walls are, are closing in on this president. Well, Secretaries Mattis and Chief of Staff John Kelly have put on the record denials of some of the reporting from Bob Woodward uh, out there. Do you, do you take them at their word? Well, I know that Bob Woodward has done this a number of times to presidents of both parties. And usually he's been a pretty good journalist. But I'll let Mr. Woodward, and I have a great, great deal of uh, respect for Secretary Mattis, let them litigate that out. Uh, Vice President Pence, uh, in our interview, also said that it, the president was just speaking his mind and being candid. It was candor this week when he said uh, that two Republican congressmen who have been indicted uh, shouldn't have been, essentially, ahead of the midterm races. Does that trouble you, those kind of statements, or do you just brush this off as more, as the vice president characterized it, candor? Well, I think this is why this is a White House in chaos, because most responsible people in the White House realize the president of the United States can't make these comments without consequences. And this president is so irresponsible, and I don't think we can continue to excuse his behavior as anything res resembling normalcy. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether my colleagues are willing to stand up and call out these activities. I think very shortly... As the Mueller probe continues, we're all going to be at that moment where history will judge us. And I think uh, um, this president will be judged as well. Senator Warner, thank you for joining us on Face the Nation. Thank you, Margaret. Stay with us for more Face the Nation. Coming up in a moment, it is President Trump versus President Obama. Will the two stars of the campaign trail energize or antagonize voters? We'll speak with the heads of the Democratic and Republican National Committees about their strategies to win control of Congress with just 58 days left until the midterm races. That's just ahead on Face the Nation. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. 
Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. And we will be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including our political panel. After a very wild week in Washington, and I know we say that a lot, we have got a lot to talk about, so be sure to stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. As this year's midterm election campaign kicks into high gear, we wanted to sit down with the chairs of both the Republican and Democratic parties. And we begin our conversation with Tom Perez, chairman of the DNC. You got 58 days to go, a lot of work. Uh, Democrats need to pick up roughly about two dozen seats or so to win a majority in the House. When we look at our CBS polling, it shows a blue wave is far from guaranteed. Well, progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability, Margaret, and we're working our tails off everywhere. I feel excited because we're organizing everywhere. We're fielding great candidates everywhere. You see the energy out there. Democratic turnout in the primaries in 2018 has been up 84 percent from 2014. And so you see that out there. That's the enthusiasm. And, and, And people are enthusiastic because we're fighting for the issues they care about. People's health care is on the ballot. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Your health care is on the ballot. If you have a pre-existing condition, that's on the ballot. Uh, good wages are on the ballot. Education's on the ballot. And frankly, our democracy is on the ballot because this is not simply uh, an election about right versus left. This is an election about right versus wrong. I worked at DOJ for 13 years. A president does not tell the Justice Department who and who not to prosecute. That is wrong. The president of the United States should not believe the former chief of the KGB over our intelligence community. We shouldn't rip children from parents. This is about all those critical issues of health care, but it's also about who we are as a nation. So our you democracy's want to put on Trump the ballot. On the ballot then. Well, we're fighting for all the things that Democrats care about, and that includes our democracy. And this president has undermined basic principles of our democracy. Presidents should unite. They shouldn't divide. But when you mention President Trump himself, I mean, this is one of the, the questions here. You know, are you antagonizing or energizing voters when you put not just President Trump, but President Obama, who was out on the campaign trail this week and broke precedent. The White House hit him for that, for invoking President Trump's name. This is sort of one of those unwritten rules that you don't slam your successor. Is this a risky strategy to be engaging like that? Oh, I welcome President Obama on the, on the campaign trail because he's fighting for the issues that people care about. But attacking healthcare. President Trump by name. Well, our health care is on the ballot and our democracy as we know it is on the ballot. You, you look at what's gone on in this country and, and you, you see a president that I again, I worked under Republican and Democratic presidents at the Justice Department. You see the unmitigated attacks, the attempts to delegitimize the press, the attempts to do things that should never be done. I thought Canada was our ally, and and it appears that they are our our fiercest adversary. The world is upside down, and our democracy is indeed on the ballot. And what we're doing is we're fighting for health care. We're fighting to make sure that if you have a pre-existing condition, you can retain your health care coverage. We're fighting to make sure that a union... A worker can join a union and organize and get good wages. Those are the things we're fighting for, and that's what Americans want in their leadership. You have the challenge of messaging against what are positive economic indicators right now. And when you look at CBS polling in the competitive districts that really matter for you uh, to flip, the majority of Americans feel positively about the economic direction of the country, uh, either going from very good, 26%, to somewhat good, 45%. How do you push back against that? Isn't what happens at someone's kitchen table going to dominate how they vote? Oh, it's very important. And, and if you are very, very wealthy in this country, the economy economy is doing great. But if you're everybody else, the economy is not doing so great. Corporate profits are soaring and wages are flat. 
people's health care is at risk because the president has destabilized the Affordable Care Act. The cost of prescription drugs are skyrocketing. So if you have a dollar more in your pocket, but the ga- gasoline has gone up 50 cents and your cost of prescription drugs have gone up immensely because they're not taking on the industry and your cost of health care has gone up, you're not, you're not even treading water. And that's the reality for millions of people, including the Harley workers in, uh, in Missouri who are about to lose their job. Wages did go up in August at the fastest pace since the recession, but I do want to ask you about the direction of the party in terms of identity. You have said Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has been this sort of rock star in many ways since she won uh, in New York a few months ago, you've called her the, the future of the party. Is that a sign that more people within the Democratic Party need to tack left? Is that the identity, to go more progressive? What I have said is Connor Lamb is the future of the party. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the future of the party. Doug Jones is the future of the party. We have a party that reflects America in every zip code. We have a party that's fighting for health care. We have a party that's fighting for fair wages. We have a party that's fighting for a democracy that works for everyone, not just a few at the top. And your question about wages, it's important for your listeners for, to understand that real wage growth is what it's about. Mm-hmm. If, if wages go up by a dollar and your cost of living goes up by a dollar fifty, you're not better off. And that's the problem with this economy. If this president would take on the pharmaceutical industry, we could do something about it. If, and, and this is indeed, we got 58 days till the weekend, and the most important thing mm-hmm. we can do is vote. And one of the things we're doing is making sure we get the vote out everywhere. And we're actually working next week to call uh, on businesses to give uh, two hours of paid leave for people so they they can get out there Mm -hmm. and vote. I'm going to ask uh, Chair McDaniel to join us in that because we should have this debate and then we should should make sure that every eligible person can get out there and vote. We got to leave it there. Thank you very much. We'll bring out here Republican Chair Ronna McDaniel next. Always a pleasure. Memories make us laugh and cry, and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look. Those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com slash save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. And we are back with the head of the Republican National Committee, Rhonda McDaniel. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Good to be with you. And I know yesterday you were in New York. I have to ask you about this. You were alongside OMB Director Mick Mulvaney when he was caught on tape, obtained by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, saying, you may hate the president, and there's a lot of people who do, but they certainly like the way the country is going. And when it comes to voters, you may have to subtract from the equation how they feel about the president and then the numbers go up dramatically. Do you think Republicans would fare better if President Trump was not so dominant in this race? The president has a 90 percent approval rating among Republicans. It's one of the highest in history for a president from his own party. And we have seen on the ground as we bring the president into these races like Montana, where he was this week, the candidates' numbers rise. We saw it with Matt Rosendale. We saw it in Ohio when Balderson was in a very tough race. We brought the president into Delaware County, and we saw him uh, help propel that Election Day vote to victory. So the president is a great asset for us. And remember, in the midterms, it's the party that's turning out their base. We have to turn out our base first. And with the president with this type of approval rating and with these results, with a 3.9% unemployment, with 4 million jobs coming back to this country, all the good things that people are feeling, as you mentioned earlier, wage increases of 2.9%. People are feeling good about where they are, and the president is a great asset for so us. So is Mick Mulvaney flat out wrong? I didn't hear him say that. I was there. You know, he, he was talking about the president being a decisive leader. He talked about his memory. He talked about working for him. I think he was just making the point that maybe if you don't like a candidate or 
you, you don't necessarily agree with them on everything. The results in this instance speak for themselves, and that you can't deny. And Democrats are going to try and make it about the president. They're going to try and make it about personality. But the results don't lie coming out of this administration. We are a better country. We are better off than we were two years ago. And everyone around the country is feeling that. And that is because of this president. There was a recording that the Journal and the New York Times both had there, um, also saying that Mick Mulvaney said there's a very real possibility that Senator Ted Cruz may lose his race in Texas. Yeah, he did. He said, no, he said it's important to be likable. We're not going to lose Texas. Yeah, he said it's important to be likable. I'm going to make this point. I don't think it's likely you could have Texas. You could have Florida in the play. He was talking to the candidates we had in the room about the importance about being likable. That is important, but we are not going to lose Texas. Anybody who watched Ted Cruz this week in these judiciary hearings with Judge Kavanaugh, hearing him talk about the importance of rule of law, hearing him talk about the importance of what Judge Kavanaugh would bring to the bench, caring about the Constitution, knows that Ted Cruz is an excellent representative for Texas, and he's going to win that seat. And likable. And likable. I think he's very likable. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, in, typically, when we look at midterm races, the president's party often loses seats. I mean, you've got some exceptions, 98, 2002. Will Republicans be able to hold control of the House? How certain are you? So first of all, we know the historical trends. 30 seats lost in that first midterm when you hold the White House. Obama lost 60 seats. And usually you, you lose seats in the Senate, too. So the Senate map, we are talking about picking up seats, which is unprecedented in a midterm of a first-term uh, president. So that's something that everyone should be looking at. One to any seat. If we pick up one seat, that will be defying history. On the House, we have a lot of seats in the margin. Absolutely, we've had an unprecedented amount of retirements. And that has made it harder in some of these swing districts. But right now, I say it's 50-50. We are out every day working. The RNC has raised to date $250 million. We've put 549 staff on the ground. We've trained 20,000 field organizers. That's four times more than we did in 2016. So our infrastructure to turn out our vote, to engage with our voters, to talk to them about these results is the best it has ever been in the midterms. Now, candidates matter, and that's going to be different in every single race. And we need these candidates to talk about their local issues, go out there. They have to work as hard as they've ever worked. Candidates who think that they're in safe districts, they're going to have to give everything. And we're going to be there backing it up at the RNC. I know you said it's going to come down to the base in many ways, but a lot of traditional Republicans are troubled by some of the president's policies, particularly on trade tariffs, going against very traditional conservative values. How do you uh, reconcile that? Well, first of all, the president has done things that have been traditional Republican uh, policies that we've campaigned on for years. Deregulation, cutting taxes, uh, strengthening our military, taking care of our veterans. And a lot of those things have spurred this economic growth, despite what President Obama is trying now to take credit for. Uh, but when it comes to the tariffs, the president has said he is for free trade. You saw that when he talked to the president of the European Union. He has said, we don't want tariffs at all. But when we are in a position of, a pow of power, as our country is economically, and we are on the rise, he is going to say to countries like China, you are not going to take advantage of the United States anymore. And he is negotiating from a position of strength. Because when we're not in this position, we won't be able to fight the $500 billion deficit the that we continually deal. For now. He's making progress, and he's fighting for Americans, and he's fighting for American jobs. And that's why he's so popular in my state of Michigan. I see it all over the country. People who were forgotten under the last mm -hmm. administration feel like they have a president who's listening and caring about them, and the proof is in the results. Rana, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We'll be back in a moment with our panel. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. 
We're back now with our panel. Amy Walter is national editor of the Cook Political Report and co-host of WNYC's The Takeaway. David Nakamura covers the White House for The Washington Post. Mark Leibovich is chief national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine and is out with a brand new book, Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. And Rachel Bade covers Congress for Politico. She is also a CNN political analyst. Uh, Rachel, I'll start off with you. We were just forecasting the races here. Uh, is Ted Cruz going to win in Texas? Are these seats something that you heard both party leaders uh, predict accurately? You know, it's Texas. Come on. Ted Cruz is likely going to win, of course. But this shows the energy on the left right now, and that is Democrats are turning out. They're, uh, they're energized, and they could really pose a threat particularly in the House, though. And I think it was interesting, you know, McDaniel mentioned 50-50 uh, and that she thought, uh, you know, it's about 50-50 chance that they keep the House. I, uh, from Capitol Hill, I've heard a little bit of a change in tone in the past couple weeks where some Republicans actually think the House is gone. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the noise that's going on. You know, they have a story to tell. Um, there was a great jobs report that came out Friday, uh, record wage increases since 2009, and they want to talk about the economy. But everyone right now is uh, focused on what's going on, the drama, uh, the scandal in the White House, the president hitting back, the Russia investigation. And that is really drowning out the Republican message right now, and it's a big problem for them. Amy, is that also what you're seeing? Yeah, you know, the energy is the is really the key part of this. The president is very good at ginning up his base and going out and making sure that, as the um, RNC chairwoman said, he's got an 88, 90% approval rating with his party. But when he fires up his base, he fires up the other side, and in fact, fires them up almost to a degree that, actually not almost, to a degree that's larger than the people who like him. When you look at the approval rating of the president, those who say they strongly disapprove him have consistently been bigger than the people who strongly approve him. So the intensity on the other side is really the big challenge for, um, for the Republicans. Is putting, is putting President Obama on the campaign trail uh, a good strategy? You know, the strategy of putting the president on the trail is to help get those people who traditionally don't turn out in midterm elections, especially young people, to come out and vote for Democrats. That turns what is right now building as a wave for Democrats. If young people also turn out, that's a tsunami. The other thing that I think is fascinating about watching this president with President Obama, both of them are trying to do the thing that is very difficult for presidents to do in a midterm, which is to say, I want that coalition that turned out for me in the presidential year, in Obama's case, young people, people of color, in Trump's case, the uh, rural, small town America. I know you came out and voted for me, but now you got to come out and vote for these members of Congress, right? It, it's a sign that you respect me if you come and vote in the midterms. It's a very difficult thing to do, especially since Trump got elected in many ways by running against the very people that he's saying, please now vote for to come back you, to office. You even saw it in Trump's rally uh, in Montana just this past week where one of his arguments is now a vote for uh, Republican members in Congress or else I face impeachment. And right. yes, he sort of means, right. he sort of means, yes, okay, some of the progress we've made on the economy and other things, but really it's about him. Right. I mean, I do think there are two points. One is, I mean, we've seen over and over again in these, these um, special elections that support for President Trump doesn't necessarily translate into turnout for Republicans down ballot. But also, I mean, yes, his support among Republicans is sky high, but the Republican Party has shrunk considerably since he has taken office. I mean, these numbers... I mean, many of them are in that 55, 60 percent range of disapproval. Are, some of them are coming from former Republicans who are no longer reflected in that sample. So I think it's an interesting, I mean, especially for a general election campaign, I think that's probably the more um, you know, prominent. Yeah, number, and, the right? more fa and the real fascinating thing about this campaign is the race for the Senate and the House are taking place in two very different Americas. Mm -hmm. The race for the Senate is through red rural America in states like Montana and North Dakota and West Virginia. The battle for the House runs through suburban America. And in one part of America, they really like Trump. In the other part, they really That's don't. He's been campaigning That's right now, right. just uh, North Dakota and Montana just this past week. Mark, I want to ask you, you know, to Rachel's point, some of the scandal in Washington sometimes overshadows the messaging that the parties would rather have heard. With the decision for the vice president, for cabinet members to come out this week against an anonymous 
self-described Trump administration official and Bob Woodward. Did they elevate the story and make the problem bigger, or did they help themselves by engaging? Like I, I think they elevated it. I don't think there's any question they elevated it, because, first of all, the number of days between now and the election in which, you know, the core story about the economy, which is what Republicans clearly want to be talking about, is not being told. I mean, that was this is another basically wasted week, if you want to keep it neutral here. So... No, I mean, I don't know if they could have ignored it. I mean, I don't know if they had a choice here, but we do, we've seen over and over again that this White House has a knack for drumming up news that has nothing to do with the economy, nothing to do with things that the Republicans would rather they talk about. Speaking of that op-ed, it feels like at least Republicans on Capitol Hill feel like this was totally counterproductive. You know, they have been trying to bring the president to their side on things like averting a shutdown right before the election, um, striking trade deals, not blowing up NAFTA completely, um, Russia, NATO. And right now, the president has a reason to be paranoid, at least, you know, that's what he's telling himself. There's people in his administration who are writing these op-eds saying that they are trying to basically rein him in. He's not going to trust anyone. So this is counterproductive for Republicans, another big problem for them. It's, it's survival instincts for his aides to come out and say that. The president does want them to come out fighting on his behalf. Right. He himself is the one who escalates uh, these controversies the most dramatically. And he did it again this week on Twitter, on public statements on Air Force One, in the middle of this campaign trip, talking about his own competence, saying, you know, he could speak for for, for, for uh, hours without notes to say how competent he is. I mean, he's trying to defend himself, and he wants to see his aides out there doing the same thing. David, um, you had some unusual warnings from the White House, the State Department, elsewhere, about what would happen in Syria if you saw this offensive in Idlib. We know the bombing is underway. It seems those warnings are being dismissed by Russia and the Assad regime. What is happening here? Uh, why aren't the Trump warnings being heeded? Yes, well, I mean, the president has sort of signaled both ways on Syria um, in his time. And, you know, I think that he's uh, someone who said that he's wanted to withdraw. He's also said someone who's sent missiles into Syria. I think, you know, he's now, there's now reports that said he's committed now to a longer-term strategy, and it's not going to be simple. So, um, you know, his relationship with the, you know, malign actors in that country have not, uh, he hasn't been that, that clear with exactly what he's um, demanding. And what should we read into the fact that in North Korea during the military parades today, they didn't include intercontinental yeah. ballistic missiles? Are we over-reading the pageantry, or is that significant? I think you're seeing a, a sign probably from Kim Jong-un. I mean, he was there with a top-level uh, Chinese official that's already uh, frustrating the White House, China's role with North Korea, maybe not putting as much pressure on them as he'd like um, to get serious about denuclearization. But I think Kim Jong-un is reading the signs that President Trump canceled this trip of his Secretary of State to Pyongyang, saying there's not enough progress. Uh, they don't want to inflame him unnecessarily. So I think it is a sign that uh, Kim is trying to put these things back on track. However, I think analysts are right to say that we haven't seen any real progress on the denuclearization. And the more time goes by, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies are saying um, North Korea is not denuclearizing. They're not ramping it down. In fact, you know, behind the scenes, they're taking efforts to conceal what they have uh, and continue to move forward with the program. Mark, you just wrote this book about the NFL. Yes. Going from, from one swamp to the other. Yes, you exactly. You compare them in, in the book. Um, but this week, just even this morning, you have President Trump tweeting about football. Why is this such a useful political tool for him? Well, I mean, look, the, the, there's the old saying that football, the NFL owns a day of the week. That would be Sunday, right? And what I've found initially just from running, again, trading swamps, as you said, is that politics keeps infringing, this week being a perfect object lesson of my football book is out and we're talking about politics. <laughs> President Trump obviously loves this issue. He has, you know, a lot of personal resentment towards the NFL he Why? thinks that because he's wanted to own a team for about four decades and the most exclusive club, billionaire boys club, the NFL owners want no part of him. So no for, for you, that's what it is. It's not about patriotism and the anthem. And it, the it's that, too. It is absolutely that, too. I mean, for the, my book, I wanted to like look into like what that world looks like. It's a very mysterious world. I don't think most people know what goes into running the National Football League. In, Mr., in President Trump's case, this is a culture war grenade. He feels that this is a winning issue. The protests are something that he feels the polls are on his side with, which it would seem he is. It is. And he also gets to be in the middle of the great spectacle of American life, which is football and politics at the same time. Nike also thought it was a winning issue, apparently. Apparently, no. I mean, what Nike has done and what Donald Trump has done and what Colin Kaepernick have done is they, they have sort of filled the vacuum of leadership inside the NFL. And the NFL has just basically chosen to punt Good, good, good I didn't even do that on purpose. Totally didn't do that on purpose. Um, on this issue, they, they really, they're still kind of doddering around. No one knows what to do. There's no policy. And so you have these other entities filling the vacuum. Rachel, 
Who was the 2020 uh, candidate trying out in these Kavanaugh hearings this week? Who? Which one? <laughs> you know, um, yes, the focus was supposed to be on Kavanaugh. It became an audition for 2020. You had uh, Kalamar Harris uh, from California potentially running in 2020. She waited about 10 seconds uh, to interrupt the hearing um, when they first started, when Grassley basically gaveled them in, uh, saying, we can't have this hearing. We don't have all the documents on Kavanaugh. It is not right. We don't know what he's really going to do as a Supreme Court justice until we get these documents. Mm -hmm. That was obviously followed up by Cory Booker, uh, who is also a potential um, candidate in 2020 in his Spartacus moment, where he said, I'm going to release a whole bunch of uh, confidential information that the Senate panel didn't want to release. Right. Um, of course, some of those had already been released, so he kind of looked a little silly in that a moment. Bit of a bit of a yeah. kerfluffle. But, but on that, some of them had not been. out of time. We <laughs> <laughs> keep going forever. We, we have to wrap you on the filibuster. <laughs> Thanks for watching. I won't be here next week. I'll be taking some time with a new member of my family, but John Dickerson and the Face the Nation team will be here. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Vice President Mike Pence, Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner, DNC Chair Tom Perez, and RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.